In this episode of Nordic Nation, we speak to the New York Times deputy sports editor and book author, Matt Futterman. Futterman, who is based out of New York City, has an ongoing love affair with distance running. He also covers cross-country skiing, most often in the run-up to the Olympics. His latest book, Running to the Edge, chronicles the story of running coach Bob Larson. Looking for a well-researched and lovely read during these strange times, the book comes highly recommended. We connected with Futterman this past Tuesday, a day after what was supposed to be a 26.2-mile jaunt for Futterman in the Boston Marathon, which, for obvious reasons, was canceled. What was yesterday? Oh, God. Yeah. We'll do it. Okay. Um, okay. It's Are we ready to go? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're ready to go. Uh, I'm Matt Futterman. I'm the deputy sports editor of the New York Times. I am also a writer. Uh, write a lot about a lot of different sports there, and I also run a lot. And yesterday was April 20th, and I was supposed to be running uh, the Boston Marathon for uh, the fifth time, and that didn't happen. Um, it got canceled along with just about everything else this spring. And uh, so I did go for a nice run yesterday, but uh, it wasn't from Hopkinton to downtown Boston. And how far was that run yesterday? Or did you completely just like once things you, you understood once things were going to shut down in terms of the race schedule, did you just kind of throw the training plan out the door? I, I would say yes and no. Um, I mean, I sort of run just as part of my life. So uh, I'm still running all the time. I've actually never run more in my life than I have the last five weeks, I don't think. Um, Mm. So what I did was largely took off my watch because I didn't really care exactly how far I was going or exactly what my pace was because I wasn't pointing towards anything. So I'm not wearing a watch for the most part. And, uh, at the same time, I'm not cross training though, because there's no pools to swim in. I'm not really taking any yoga classes for the most part, which was my main cross training that I did to give my legs a break from running. So the strangest and most pleasant surprise is that I'm actually averaging like somewhere around 75 miles a week. which I have never done in my life and it feels kind of great. I'm not breaking down. I'm sort of varying speeds. I do some of those miles on the beach sometimes. So maybe that's making it a little more tenable. Um, But it's been, it's been a weird, it's been one of the many weird things that have happened over the last um, five, six weeks. And you are 51-ish? I am 50. I will be 51 in August. Dang. Okay. I'm a September baby, so I, I've got you by a year. Okay. Okay. And just to, the, the backstory is, is that Matt and I know one another. We were both undergraduates. And you probably don't remember this, but I do. And I actually brought it up to my little kid. We were running the other day. You used to, We would occasionally go for runs, and you would... And I think I told you this, have told you this in the past, but you'd give me some technique work. Uh, I'm not a very natural, I'm not a natural runner. And I tended to cross my arms quite a bit across my body. Uh, And you told me that that was a no-no. Yeah, I hope you've, I I mean, I think it's still a no-no. I think the general thought was, and this was my cross-country coach in high school, who said, like, if your arms are crossed, you're kind of scrunching up your lungs. And then if you open your mm-hmm. chest more, you'll have more room to breathe. And it just feels more comfortable um, once you get okay. used to it. So I'm glad you remember that. I hoped it helps. And uh, It did. I tried to explain to my child, though, I was trying to equate it to skiing. And I was like, look, where, where do you want the vector, you know, your vector, where's your, your travel going is downstream, not across. Yes. So I didn't bring in the, I didn't bring in the lung thing, but I'll, 
I'll enlighten him later. So you wrote this book called Running Running to the Edge, A Band of Misfits and the Guru Who Unlocked the Secrets of Speed. And the guru in this book, I believe, is, and you, you specify this pretty clearly, is Bob Larson, who was a longtime coach in San Diego. So I am curious, like, how would you summarize your book and how may it apply to someone who, or how might it interest someone who's sort of just a a general athlete and spends say nine months of their year focusing on cross country skiing and not necessarily running. Well, I think I would describe it as sort of, it's something of a biography, but it's really the story of the greatest unknown running coach. And I would argue coaches of just about anything uh, in the history of the United States. I mean, but the reason I wrote about Bob Larson is he's, he's the one guy who was there before the running boom, through the running boom, through the downturn in American running, and then lo and behold, he becomes the guy who brings back American long-distance running in the 2000s and is largely responsible for uh, Americans sort of counting themselves as competitors with the fastest people in the world. Uh, it, it's it's sort of a remarkable journey that he's been on. He's in his 80s now. And the, the, what he managed, managed to pull off was he figured out basically before just about anyone else the best way to run really far, really fast. Uh, I mean, I'll geek out on running for a second here. But no, I want you to. Yeah. Which is that, you know, before Larson, to the extent that there were even schools of training for running, which, are, which there barely were, there was like the Eastern Europeans led by uh, Zatopek, who was the only guy to win the uh, marathon, the 5,000 and the 10K in the same Olympics. And he was all about intervals. He did these like crazy workouts, you know, 65 quarter miles in a row with, you know, a half a minute of rest in between each quarter mile. Uh, and then there was the other school, which was the Lydiard School, um, led by the New Zealander, um, who came up with the phrase jogging, essentially. And his whole idea was train, but don't strain. Uh, go really far, really long, but don't push yourself too hard. And Larson essentially had two questions, which is why does the interval, why do the intervals have to be so short? And why do the long runs have to be so slow? And what he eventually does is he invents what we call the tempo run or the threshold run, which is running really hard for a long period of time and teaching your body and your mind to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. And that's really an important thing, um, both for running and really any sport you do, and I would argue for uh, life itself. Hey folks, a quick break in the interview here. The conversation was interrupted. We ramp up the conversation again after Futterman had posted a piece on the Berlin Marathon being canceled earlier this week. And, you know, that's like a pretty bad sign for sports because... It's not until late September, but Germany, <clears throat> but Germany, excuse me, has banned has now banned all large gatherings over five thousand people um, through October twenty fourth, and you know, like Germany's the country that's supposed to have their shit together, and so the fact that they, you know, did this is sort of like, uh oh, what's going to follow next in terms of like, is they are they going to start wiping out? Sports, the sports schedule in the fall as well. Because um, I think most people are kind of hopeful that at the very least they'd be able to hold sports events without fans in the fall, but who knows? So, you have an article titled, What Will Endurance Races Look Like When They Come Back? and posted today. Yes, 3 a.m. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I was going to say three, three. Okay. All right. And it's been updated already. So, um, before we get to your book, you know, people are, you know, people consider cross country like the World Cup. There's endurance events. There's a lot of like master's level um, 
long marathon races, like 50K races throughout Europe. So I'm just curious, can you summarize what this article is about for folks and what we may be expecting when it comes to, you know, non-ski events, because I'm assuming that's what you focused on, but what we may be expecting into the short and maybe long term here. Uh, so it was mainly, it's mainly about what is going to happen for the week, not the elite athlete, but the weekend warrior uh, athlete. Um, when we do marathons, triathlons, 5Ks, all sorts of things like that, uh, that, you know, literally millions of people do every year and every weekend um, across the world. And I think the idea is that, yes, look, these things are going to go on again. They're not going to just end. That business is not going to go away. But until there's, you know, reliable vaccines and treatments, there may be some things that make the experience much different. For instance, if you're running a marathon, we may not have the marathon start in four waves at 9, 9.30, 9 10, and 10.30. You may get a slot that says start anytime between 9 and 11. And you just show up and you go run. You cross the starting line and you run the course. And I think you know that's that might be a very sensible way to involve to avoid that horde at the starting line when everybody's sort of crunched together and all over each other and also in these starting villages um so there's sort of things like that which are going to have to happen staggered starts more staggered starts and uh you know for a while if you're a triathlete i mean no pools are open so no one's going to be able to train for a while and so there's a lot of race directors right now who are pretty nervous about putting triathletes in the water anytime in the next couple of months if they haven't been swimming for a while. So there's just going to be adjustments for a while before we get back to what is the endurance world that many of us know and love. Okay. So where we left off in your book, you were talking about sort of the dichotomy of two, say, popular um, training regimens and how Bob Larson kind of devised something that was kind of a, a, you know, I'm just going to say happy medium between the two. Um, When it came to, he incorporated, I think what you said was like more threshold running. Uh, Is that correct? Definitely. Yeah. You know, from what you gathered in researching your book, why was that so novel at the time? It was so novel because, and first of all, it was so novel, just the idea of people training was novel. <laughs> people training, first people training for road races. I mean, this is what originally attracted me to this story is I've always sort of been fascinated by those really early pre-running boom days when running was really just the one long distance running, especially running on roads, was just such a fringe activity. I think it's so hard for us to understand nowadays when it's so mainstream just how fringy it was. Um, and that's who the people were who did it. You know, there's a reason why when you look at the pictures of them, a lot of them have like mustaches and long hair. Uh, it was very sort of countercultural. So um, in that sense, it was, you know, it's it just anyone thinking about it was somewhat revolutionary. Um, but I think it was because people were so tied to this idea that it was either intervals or it was long, slow distance. And, um, you know, sports is a, co- is a copycat business. People do what the winners do. And Bob hadn't had any winners at that point, but what he did have was he had a really good background in science. Uh, he was what we would now call like a sports science major in college, uh, and he worked with Fred Cash, who was really one of the first uh, physiologists in the country to do studies of the heart the adult heart and its capacity to improve itself. If you really want to get down to why it was so revolutionary, it was because, you know, up until the mid 60s, it was thought that if you strained your heart after the age of about 35, you were going to risk a 
catastrophic cardiac event. And Bob, with the guidance of Fred Cash, comes to this idea that, no, the heart is a muscle like any other muscle. And if you train it, the muscle will get stronger. So here's one thing that kind of caught my attention. And and maybe it was, and I know that, you know, part of what you're doing is storytelling and making the reader want to turn the page. Part of it is like being hyper accurate. I mean, you are a journalist, but it struck me as like, oh my gosh, these dudes, I mean, the name of the book is um, Running to the Edge, right? I mean, they are like literally at, it seemed like all the time when you were depicting a training session, like these dudes were at their limit and running hard. What did you come across when it came to rest? In particular, when Larson was trying to find these athletes in the San Diego area and ensure that they were in it for the long term. And those aren't great scenes. It's like, oh, here I am depicting like an athlete resting, meaning like they're they're chilling out on the couch. But what type of rest was involved for these athletes to recover and turn around and do it the next day? There was not a ton of rest, although it was very individualized. Larson was really, really good at at tailoring training to the individual and that was pretty revolutionary at the time too. I mean, this was a very this is a very top down era of coaching and training. You know, here's the here's what my runners do. Here's what you will do. And Larson was very focused on the idea that each person is different. Each person has different levels of tolerance. You know, some guys can hammer 150 miles a week without problem and they can just do it and then other guys one of his most successful early runners at Mendoza Ed could not really take more than 75 or 80 miles a week and Ed went to the Olympics in the uh in the 10,000 in 1976 but he had just sort of terrible biology when it came to stress fractures in his shins and so Larson focused very heavily on not only how much Ed was running, but also where he was running. He'd have him do workouts on grass. He took sawdust and put sawdust all over one of the lanes of the track at the junior college where he worked. And that was Ed's lane because it would cushion, uh, cushion his legs when he took every step. Um, so it, it, it there was some rest involved um but you know these guys were these guys were young and full of energy and full of a lot of machismo and it was the 1970s and they loved to hammer i noticed david epstein you know i went to your website and i was you know checking it out uh david epstein who is an author um a book that people may be familiar with, The Sports Gene. So he gave a little blurb about your book. And he talks about in The Sports Gene all those different variables that may go into like the gift of your parents, essentially, Um, your DNA. And the question forks a little bit. Part of it is, what did you learn about these athletes in terms of commonality? You know, was it the high VO2 max, their just uh, ability to shut pain out? You know, what did you learn about those two pieces? One being human aptitude and being able to be like psychologically malleable to like pain. And the other is, hey, here, here are your metrics that you're born with. And boy, this person's just off the charts. You know, I think a lot of them, the through line um, was they were all just, for the most part, they were just sort of slightly not blue chip. You know, they were fast, but they all sort of had something to prove. Um, They all had chips on their shoulder in some way. And I, I think they were very receptive to what I would call would be, you know, the sort of three tenets of the Larson way of training and running and approaching the sport and approaching your life. And, you know, the first one is, is like, I, as I said before, you know, learn how to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Um, 
be there, you know, be, be in that spot where, uh, this is sort of the, uh, sort of the second tenant. When you feel like you can't go any faster, try and go one click faster and sustain that. Um, that's what it's about. Uh, and then the third tenant is understanding this idea that, you know, who you are, where you're born, how much money you have, uh, what logo is on your singlet, like none of that is your destiny. Your destiny is what you make of it. And um, they really believed that. They understood it. They accepted it. And, uh, and he convinced them that they could be as, as fast and as strong as anyone in the world. Yeah, that was something I was interesting. I was thinking about as you were answering about like the culture of sports and how it's certainly changed since I was a kid. I'm imagining it's changed quite a bit since you were the you were a kid, and you know I've referred to it as like the sports industrial complex where you know it's like okay, you it, it's ten thousand a year for you to like essentially pay to play. Mm-hmm. What did you learn about what the culture may have been like then and how it may be different from how athletes are selected and perhaps how they're able to progress through a system? I think what I learned was how how happenstance a lot of it was back then. Um, and a lot of these guys were discovered basically in gym class on the 600 yard run where the kids would do the run and the person who was really fast would get pulled aside by the gym teacher and say, and they said to him, you know, you ought to try and run track. And a lot of them said, well, what's track? And a lot of them really didn't know sort of that there was this competitive thing that they could do, uh, up until, you know, middle school. Um, it was, the world was a lot, it was a lot bigger then in terms of things felt very far away and very out of reach and you sort of knew what was immediately around you and if you didn't look very hard for what else was there you weren't really going to see it Uh, and so I think it was really the, the opposite of the sports industrial complex of what existed back then. And what's amazing to me is how quickly it's all changed. I mean, this really wasn't very, it doesn't feel like it was all that long ago, I guess, you know, close to 50 years at this point, but the early 70s, we're talking about the early 70s and you're talking about kids still being, you know, quote unquote, discovered in high school, in gym class. That's, that sounds strange, doesn't it? But yeah, it seems like you hear about these kids when they're in, when they're young. Um, and oh yeah, this person's going to start killing it, and you know before you know it, they're rattling off times, which for me, oftentimes, like I know what a four minute mile means. But the but but what's interesting is that the sports industrial complex, I think you know at least in terms of track and field distance running, it it, ha- it doesn't really it hasn't really worked, um, or maybe it hasn't really worked in the sense that. There are a lot more options now. So there's a lot of sports, a lot of kids who probably would have been great runners are, are playing soccer or lacrosse or um, any number of other sports that weren't really all that widely available um, back then. But in terms of the numbers of kids who were running incredibly fast times back then for, say, the two-mile compared with now and then what they were doing then holds up and those guys would be great high school runners now you just look at the times so uh it's that to me is that to me is something that's really interesting and i don't have the exact reason for it there's some algorithm i'm sure that would take into account number of alternatives growth in population uh and how much and improvements in nutrition and training and technology and all those things and how much faster people should be. Um, and they're not. When we're following essentially the career arc, it seemed to me the career arc of Larson through the brook uh, from San Diego to UCLA. And then when he is primarily based 
out of out of Mammoth. Can you talk a little bit about his? Uh, you know, you know, were there tr- were there major failures for him when it came to like we're applying this methodology and we're going to see it through and. I guess, yeah. Were there failures that made him question his fidelity to this type of training? I mean, early on, I think it probably took him maybe a little bit longer than he thought it would for his junior college team to get as good as it could get. Um, in And that would be Grosjean Junior College in San Diego. But it was still pretty fast. And it was because they were training differently than anybody else. They were doing more miles and they were doing more intense miles than anybody. And so they would go to these meets and Grossmont Junior College, which drew kids from basically eight districts in the San Diego region, would uh, be as good as all these four-year colleges that were at the same meets. And were probably just about as good as any cross country team in the country, uh, and, and and then but but then once he moved away from uh, junior college, went to UCLA, his focus really shifted from distance runners to uh, I mean sprinters, but quarter milers mainly um, because those are the guys that get you points in order to win national championships in. Division One college athletics and college track and field. So, to the extent that there were failures, I think he really wasn't concentrating very hard on distance running during those years. I know he wasn't concentrating all that hard. UCLA is also a tough place to recruit distance runners to. There's not a lot of good places to train right around the campus the way there might be in Oregon or Arkansas or any number of other places. Flagstaff. So. Uh, to the extent that there was failure, he was still winning national championships. He just wasn't doing them with distance runners. And, you know, once he made the decision to retire from UCLA and to try and revive and rescue American long distance running and form this little team that was in Mammoth, based in Mammoth, he had a lot of success pretty quickly uh, with Dina Castor and Meb Kefleski. Um, and several other runners who trained there. It, it, you know, in 2000, you you only had one American in the men's marathon, no women placed in it. Um, and four years later, you had Americans winning two of the six marathon medals in Athens. That's that's pretty that's pretty good showing. Yeah, and do you want to summarize for folks? I mean, it, again, like. Even I know about the running group that was, in, you know, I've known about it for years that was based out of Mammoth and what they were trying to do. Do you want to discuss about what he was trying to pl- apply there in terms of training principles and why that may have been effective? With the caveat, the one thing I may want you to address, and I, 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 in my second reading of the book, I keep on looking at these elevation parameters where it's like, okay, I think Mammoth, is Mammoth the town at r- roughly 7,000 feet? Uh, I think the town is at about seven, but I think they were living, maybe the town's a little higher than that. I think it's above eight. Actually, okay, so and, it's quite high. Yeah, he really wanted to be high. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'll answer that question two ways. Yeah, in terms of the principles that he was applying, he basically said, he basically said, I'm going to apply the principles I did in the 1970s with my original team, the Humboldt Toads, who came out of nowhere and won the 1976 National Cross Country Championships. You know, beat the Oregon Track Club and the Colorado Track Club and all these other clubs from fancy places. Uh, and the reason why they won is because, like I said before, they were running differently. They were doing these, they were just hammering out these tempo runs day after day and doing really high mileage at the same time. So he was going to apply those principles because what happened in the late 80s and 90s is that. Americans stopped doing both of those things. Uh, and I, I, I attribute it to what happened to Alberto Salazar, who, you know, before he was a 
coach who was banned from the sport for four years, you know, was a terrific um, marathoner whose career just ran into a wall. And nobody trained harder than Alberto. And I think the false lesson that people took from what happened to him was that you shouldn't train too hard, that you only have a certain number of steps and you don't want to use them up in training. And so people stopped doing really high mileage. They were topping out at about 90 miles uh, a week. And uh, that's just not enough, especially because they weren't doing the hard, long uh, tempo runs that were such a mainstay of Bob's program. So what he said was, I'm going to do what we did back then with one caveat, which is that we're going to do it high. And we're going to do it at elevation because that's what the Kenyans and the Ethiopians are doing. They're running in the Rift Valley. They're running in groups. Um, that was the, that was another, uh, I think, I think to go back when I was saying the three principles, you know, the one I left out was, um, the power of the group. The group is more powerful than the individual, uh, that, you know, we run as, we run as individuals, but we run together. And, and if you rely on teammates, they can really spur you on. And that's what the Kenyans and the Ethiopians were doing. They were training in groups so that one guy didn't fall off. They were training at elevation and they were doing hard, long tempo runs and distance runs. And the reason, the reason I ask, and I, again, I know that, you know, the, the, kind of underlying principle for altitude training, live high, train low. Or lower. And lower. Right. Yeah, so that's my, that was my, okay, so that was my point. I'm like, oh my gosh, they're going down to Bishop at 4,000 feet at a cinder track, which is considerably lower than like eight or 9,000 feet. But still, like if I'm thinking about, you know, people who are Nordic skiing and training, 4,000 feet still fairly high so clearly that was low enough and it worked but did that ever i mean you're from the east coast did you ever think oh my gosh maybe this would have i mean you can't argue with with medals at the olympics in terms of success but are other people experimenting or have they experimented with a paradigm where maybe you're living at seven thousand feet but you're able to get down even lower two thousand feet I mean, I, I mean, we live at maybe 3,500 feet here, ski at anywhere between, say, 5,000 and 6,000. If I go ski at 2,500, I notice it. It's like I feel almost like I'm at sea level for a day. Right. So they, I mean, yes, they went down to Bishop and they would train at 4,000 sometimes. But they also spent plenty of time running on trails at 7,500 and 8,000 and sometimes at 9,000. Uh, they go up and run around some of those alpine lakes up there. And so they were playing around with altitude constantly, but they were staying really high. Uh, I, I mean, I wish I could do more altitude training, but I think in terms of, in, in terms of the impact of it, you just have to look at Flagstaff, which is basically mm -hmm. where... I don't know. I don't know what the percentage would be, but I don't know, somewhere between sixty and eighty percent of the top distance runners in the country now live. And Flagstaff, I think, is you know seventy five hundred or mm -hmm. so. They, yep. they and they they do exactly what was being done uh, in Mammoth, which is they'll drive forty five minutes. They'll go down to yeah, they'll go down to three thousand. Sometimes they'll go further down than that. They'll stay up in Flagstaff and run on the trails up at seventy five hundred. I think Bob would say, and a lot of and some of the studies would show that you're better off if you stay above eight. At least your sleep above eight thousand feet. That's kind of important where you sleep. Um, but you know, there's a there's a lot of there's a lot to be done with altitude um, and. You know, you want to maximize it as much as you can. The only issue is places that are very high don't usually have a lot of jobs. Okay. So in your book, you do just this wonderful job. Like for me, you know, it's your ability to set the scene and paint the picture of Meb winning the 2000. 
14 Boston Marathon. What is your process like when you're crafting that story on paper? And how many drafts do you go through? And are you going back and watching video or, or re-listening to an interview with Meb? How, how do you pull that off? I think, I mean, I'm watching the video just to make it uh, almost as a fact-checking thing. Um, so in terms of, and in terms of, you know, getting, getting it right and getting the scene, it's just like, a lot doing a lot of interviewing and you know asking everybody tell me the story about what happened that morning starting from the beginning and you know paint me the picture stopping them in the middle of a sentence of a sentence and saying you know, what did that look like what were you thinking then um I mean I, I, I'll never forget the moment when I was interviewing um Chibet, Wilson Chibet, who came in second that year. And I said, you know, how come you guys let him go? Because uh, Meb stretched out a, a very big lead very early in the race. And he said, you know, you have to understand, we, we weren't even thinking that he might even be a factor in the race. We weren't even paying attention to him. You know, the African runners had gotten together. They had decided what the pace was going to be for the half marathon uh, for the first half. They were going to stick to it. They would, and here was Meb. He hadn't won anything in five years. Uh, he hadn't taken that silver medal in the Olympics in 10 years. They didn't care. He was almost 38 years old. They didn't care what he was going to do. Uh, and, you know, that was just so enlightening to me. And, you know, I, I said, well, well, then, well, then what happened? And he said, well, we got to 22 miles and I saw how far he was and I looked at everyone else and I said, or maybe I think it was 20 miles, he said this. And I said, we have a, and he said, we have a problem <laughs> because he realized who was right. in front of him and how far ahead of him he was. And he realized that that was going to be, he was going to be really, really hard to catch. Uh, so I think it's more, it's just, it's just like doing any other story. You call everybody you can think of that might know something about it and ask them what they saw. Yeah. Okay. Well, you do a great job. Thank you. Okay. So one of the things you, you folks have done at the New York Times in the past years, you've done some, I, I mean, really, honestly, like I love to read about running and less so, I suppose, about training methodology and more so just about the stories that are out there. And there's been a lot of running news in the past year. There's been news about Salazar, you know, abusing athletes. There's been news about, you know, Salazar and doping. That said, what are your thoughts about the state of American running? Um, you know, it, it's been tumultuous when one you think about how some female athletes have been treated when it, when it comes to, you know, food restrictions, body image, and also dope. So I think, you know, elite sports is fraught these days at every level, in, in every sport. Um, we don't really, we don't really know what we want. We want people to be really successful. We want to win the medal table at the Olympics. We want people on Wheaties boxes or, um, on visa commercials that are supposedly, you know, quote unquote heroes. Um, but we also want a very sort of humane and kind upbringing. And, um, and I don't think anyone has figured out whether that's possible on a mass scale, as depressing as that says, as that is to say, I think there's a whole, um, there's a whole rethinking of what it means to be a coach, what a coach can tell you to do, what a coach should tell you to do, what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. And, you know, these are conversations that probably should have happened a long time ago. Uh, and whatever the outcome is, uh, I, I, I think you can't, you can't, you can't put a put the priority on winning, but really unhealthy people. Uh, years ago, I was 
interviewing Andre Agassi. And uh, this was after he had retired. And we were, ta- we were talking about, he wrote a lot very openly in what I think is just about the best sports book ever written open. Um, yeah, great book. You know, about yep. his drug use yep. and about his relationship with his father. And I said to him, I said, you know, here's the, here's the issue. Here's the, I, I said, you know, Andre, I know this was really hard for you and your childhood was kind of miserable and stuff. I was like, but here's the problem. It kind of worked, didn't it? And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, you're the number one tennis player in the world. So how do you argue with that? And he said, I, I, but he's like, but what was the cost? He's like, I was also a drug addict and a completely broken person. And I was miserable. And he's right. You know, like if, if that's the price you had to pay. And I think what he's saying is he paid too large a price for it. Uh, I mean, he, 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 he has basically an eighth grade education um, in terms of a formal education. He's probably, I mean, he and LeBron James, I would say, are probably the smartest, least educated people I've ever met. Uh, they're, you know, amazingly self-conscious and well-read and thoughtful and, you know, world smarter than I ever will be. Uh, and, um, you know, he's, I think he's basically, his basic sense of it is, yeah, that wasn't worth it. So, um, I think you're right. It, it, the, the state of elite sports, whether it's running or anything in a world where everything is so expensive and people are yelling at each other and parents are screaming at 14-year-old referees from the sidelines as they watch their six-year-olds play soccer. Um, it's a real problem, and we've got to figure it out. One last question about the book that I laughed out. I, I laughed pretty hard when I read this scene. There's a scene where you intersperse, well, you intersperse I, I, I guess your, your method in, in the book is you're discussing the narrative of, of Larson and his athletes and how that transpires chronologically. And also chronologically, I believe, you intersperse that, those sections of the book with little first person, I would, I would call them vignettes. That a good, accurate assessment there? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> There's a vignette where you talk about smoking a cigarette in the, in the basement of a frat house in college. You know that scene, right? I know the scene, <laughs> I yes. It's like, huh. Really, I thought that was really funny. In that, how, how like, was that a habit or is that a one-off situation? Matt? It was. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily call it a habit, but it was like something I occasionally enjoyed doing. And I, I lived, I did a semester in uh, in Israel, a trimester in Israel, and. You know, everybody smokes sure, in Israel sure. or, or did. I haven't been there in 30 years. Uh, but at the time, certainly everybody was smoke. Everybody was smoking. And I, I didn't, I don't know if I smoked more than one or two cigarettes a day, but, um, and that was when I was in Israel. And then coming back to college, uh, I guess it was something I did maybe when I was, you know, if I was, if I was drinking, I might have a cigarette. Um, and it, it was, it was just something that was, that was there and other people were doing it. And I was 21 years old and why the hell not? <laughs> For sure. And, like, it just uh, struck me as this great funny scene. You know, the punchline of the, you know, the punchline of the scene you're referencing is, there was a woman yeah. that I used to pass every day while we were running, and she came up to me. I, 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 I know. I was like, who was that? Yeah. I can't remember her name. I wish I could. And she, and she came up to me, and she just said, Matt Futterman, you're a runner. What the hell are you doing smoking? And I stubbed out the cigarette. And I, it would be great to say that it was the last cigarette I ever smoked. I was just going to ask. It was not. Um, there was probably another year or two of the occasional cigarette. Uh, okay. Needless to say, I don't 
smoke anymore. Sure. Um, I, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but, you know, it was a great scene. Okay. Well, thank you very much. And it's okay. I mean, I'm sure there are lots of runners who have the occasional cigarette, or maybe there are. I wouldn't, wouldn't be surprised. Um, I'm sure. Yeah. Covering Nordic sports for the New York Times. I mean, you guys have just a massive, you know, I would call it like a big presence in an enter- enterprise going to the Olympics. And normally, you folks are not necessarily covering cross-country skiing, biathlon um, on a day-to-day basis, even throughout the winter. Like, it's rare that you guys might run a story. However, in the run-up to the Olympics and then during the Olympics, it becomes part of your normal coverage. And, you know, I'm just kind of curious if you can kind of get into your journalism uh, mode about how do you go about preparing yourself and your staff for covering a sport? And let's, if we can hammer down on uh, or drill down on, on cross country skiing that you guys don't normally cover. We're generally just interested in good stories um, that we think people will want to read. And there are great stories about, about Nordic athletes that are out there. And if, if we if we had more of them and knew more about them and covered it on a regular basis, um, we'd get we'd be able to we'd be able to do more do even more coverage. Uh, unfortunately, we live in a world of limited resources, and so you know we can't have a a uh, a journalist who's on the tour with the biathletes and the cross country skiers all winter. Um, but we're always paying attention to it. Well, at least I'm always paying attention to it. Um, I can't, you know, I can't necessarily always tell you who who won last weekend's race. Uh, but I, you know, I check in the I check the standings. I'll sure. watch the occasional. I'll watch the occasional event. Um, I mean, partly it's my job, but I also love it. I mean, I think it's beautiful. Uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful sport. It's an endurance event. It's very similar to. Some of the other stuff I, I, I like to cover and I like to write about. And in the run-up to a games, you know, that's just gets intensified. Um, we will spend, I mean, assuming, you know, God, God willing, there is a World Cup season next year. I mean, we'll pay pretty close attention to it in preparation for what we will want to be delivering a year from then. Uh, you know, we'll be interviewing people. We'll be embedding with athletes. We'll be, it's, it, it takes a lot of planning. Uh, it takes a fair amount of money and commitment that, that frankly, a lot of other news organizations just unfortunately don't have. Um, it's not for their lack of desire because I know, I know people from other publications that would love to do coverage of this kind of stuff. Uh, but, uh, but so so it just it just takes a lot of uh, it, it takes a lot of it just takes some paying attention to and caring and being passionate about it and uh, you know I, I I've been covering going to Olympics for twelve years or something like that and um, I've one of the things I always wanted to see was I wanted to see that first. Uh, that first cross country skiing medal that the Americans would win since 1976. And I guess this was my third winter games. Yeah. My third winter games. And, um, each time I think I had written stories about like, could this be the year and who was most likely to do it? And, um, sometimes I was at the Hill and sometimes, Talia was at the. Talia was pretty much there all the time. Um, she's from Minnesota, and so she and grew up cross country skiing, and also had sort of a personal connection to Jesse Dignans. So she loved going to all those races and babysitting them. Uh, yeah, and then when it happened, um, I was thrilled to be a part of it. When you do you cover an event like the Olympics, do you grab it? And and let's talk. I mean, I'm guessing if you go to the summer games, you're you know interested in the five five thousand, the ten thousand, and the and the marathon, um, just because maybe that's sort of you, it's relatable to you. Uh, at the winter games, what are you just itching to see? 
Like I really want to just be there for to 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 be part of that atmosphere and event. At a Winter Games, yeah, I I do love the the Nordic events. Um, they're just generally a big party, uh, especially. I mean, I, I, Vancouver. I remember walking into you'd enter the the Nordic Stadium. And it was like, it was like walking into Scandinavia. It was, it was amazing. It was all of a sudden you were just in this world of Swedes and Norwegians and, and Danes and, uh, and, you know, from all of those great, great countries, um, in Nordic events. And, uh, I guess Denmark is not that strong. So we shouldn't have said that, but, um, I was just going through my Scandinavian, my Scandinavian countries and it was cowbells and noise and nine, you know, nine thirty in the morning and people were already drunk and, uh, it was just completely magical. So I love being in that atmosphere. Uh, Olympic hockey tournaments are pretty fun. Um, there's an intensity to those games that is, is really interesting to see. Um, I would say those are sort of like generally my top two Alpine. I love Alpine skiing. I love the sport of Alpine skiing. I find it very frustrating to cover because you can't see anything. You're just watching, you're just watching on a video board the whole time and you can't really feel much of an atmosphere there so that's can be a little bit of a struggle but I, I love ski mountains uh yeah do you get out and ski well you made the reference to skiing a few times in your book uh you guys get out to ski a bit it sounds like downhill at least yes yeah it's been a really important thing uh for me i have three daughters and um i think as a dad of daughters you're sort of always looking for hunting around for things that you can sort of have common ground on. And, uh, I taught my, I made sure my daughters became downhill skiers one, because I think it's great sport, but B, I just really wanted people to ski with my wife doesn't ski. So, um, she doesn't downhill ski. Um, so, uh, it sort of became the thing that I do with them. And we've gone on some, a lot of great Western, ski adventures uh throughout their childhoods and it's been one of the most pleasurable things about my life yes the skiing's phenomenal but you know the chairlift ride with your teenage daughters is uh also some pretty good quality time yeah i, lo- I think i think it was in your book of your reference that and, and i forget which daughter it was but that she tends to be fairly quiet but and correct me if I'm wrong here, but on the chairlift, she won't shut up. Is that almost a direct yeah, quote? Yeah, right. Yeah, I love right. that. No, that's true. That's okay. true. No, and I think it, it, I think it happens to. I, I don't know. I, it's it's pretty common. I don't know. They, I've, I have found that my teenage kids are rather. You know, they get the teenagers withdraw from their parents. But if you're out and you're doing something together and you're like on an adventure. Uh, and it's a little harder for them to get to that screen. Uh, it, it can be, it can be a great cool. moment. All right. Well, thanks for your time, Matt. And thanks for all your reporting about, you know, sports and sports as it relates to our broader lives. I appreciate it. Oh, Good thanks. To, you know. Thanks so much for reading. Uh, oh, yeah, and thanks so much for the other answer to how I get ready for, uh, for an Olympics is I just read faster skier a lot. <laughs> so. <laughs> so, okay. Well, thanks and stay, stay healthy. Okay. Okay. You All too. Right. Stay All in right. that bubble. All right. Yeah, I will. All right. Thanks, Matt. Take care. Yeah. Talk to you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. And we hope everyone is safe and sound out there.